0: So, what is, what is your loveliest place? Now, we, we, maybe we don't use that, that word loveliest, right? Maybe that's not a, a common word. So, how about some uh, synonyms? How about beautiful? What's the most beautiful place? What's the most attractive or appealing, enchanting, magnificent, splendid? Okay, maybe we don't use splendid either. But what's the loveliest place? So think about that for a second. What would be your go-to vacation place? See, I can answer that. I'm gonna answer that for my wife, actually. So I know what Katie's determining factors for a beautiful vacation. Number one, it must be clean. Number two, it must be cozy. Number three, it must be clean. Number four, it should be sunny, and most importantly, It should be clean. That is by far her definition of beautiful or lovely. For me, I'm fine with not too expensive and someplace where I can have some quiet and read a good book. So if it's clean, eh, as long as I got a book, I'm good. But what is God's loveliest place? What is the place that God says, this is my place? Is it Fiji? Is it the top of Everest? Is it, is it, what is it? Where is that loveliest place? So today we're going to answer that question. This is stemming out of our ladies retreat that many of you just got back from. Thank you for showing up. Um, this will be your final teaching of the women's retreat, um, and we all get to be a part of it. Now, I'm going to be covering a lot of ground today, unlike what we normally do on Sundays, which is we take one passage and we just dig into that. I'm going to be covering a lot of area. So if this is too much for you to track and write down, please just shoot me an email. There's business cards out there with my email on it. Or find me after the service, and I will, I'll send you a copy of my notes. Because today, what we're trying to figure out is, what is God's loveliest place? And what does that mean for us as followers of Christ? So, I'm going to start off with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who really, just as usual, nails it. He said, Nothing in the world is dearer, more lovely to God's heart than his church. Therefore, being his, let us also belong to it, that by our prayers, our gifts, and our labors, we may support and strengthen it. Now, for honest, the church today is kind of ragged on, the church today is put down. The news coverage of the church is going to bring out the things that are not good about it. But we must remember Christ sees his church as lovely. Yeah, the church has problems, and exposing them is a good thing. Yeah, calling out the hypocrisy of people who attend a church is important. But we must remember, despite the church's brokenness, the Christ, Christ loves his church. So today we're going to look at what the Bible says about the church and how Christ views the church. The author of Hebrews wrote that the Lord endured the cross and all its shame. He said, for the joy set before him, from Hebrews 12, 2. What joy exactly is that? Well, there's lots of answers to that. We could say it was the joy in his father. We could say it was the joy in obedience. We could say it's the joy in defeating his enemies. And no doubt, all of those are true. But there's another joy that we can't miss. And this joy is the fact that he loves to rescue the broken. He loves to take his broken bride and make her beautiful. Let me show you where we see this. In Revelation chapter 19, verses eight, 7 and 8. It says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has been made, her, made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This bride, this picture of this bride on her wedding day is a picture in the book of Revelation of Christ's church. So what makes a church lovely? What makes it beautiful? Well, first we've got to figure out what is a church? So the first question we're going to ask, ask is what is the church? And I'll tell you right off the bat, that's the wrong question, because the Bible never uses the word church for a place. It's never a what, it's a who. It's never, a ga- it's never just a place, it's a gathering of people. As a matter of fact, the word church in the New Testament is not one single time used for a building it's always referring to people whether it's all of the people that are following Christ or it's the people in a certain city that are following Christ see we misuse this we 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 hear this all the time there is a church down the street there is a church over here hey is that the church building that's not what Jesus is talking about Jesus is talking about his church And see, the funny thing about it is, is in, in Ephesians 4, it talks about Christ's body is the church. He has one body. There is no way there can be multiple churches. It doesn't work that way. So there is one church, and it is made up of followers of Christ. So what is the definition of a church? Well, I found a couple of good definitions. I couldn't choose, so I'm going to give you both. The first one is the church is a regenerate people of God saved by the power of God for the purposes of God. I like that. That's alliteration. We could preach that, right? The people of God with the power of God for the purposes of God. Another one I found was that the church is the regenerate people of God, saved by the, sorry, the church of the community of God, who live on the ground as the expression of Jesus's Superiority and sovereignty. I love that, that we are the on the ground, we're the boots on the ground picture of Christ in this world. So both of these definitions work. We're the people, with the power, with the purpose. We're Jesus' expression of himself here on earth. So the first thing we see with these definitions, we see two facts which give us huge implications for understanding what the church is. The first fact is that not everyone that sits in a church on Sunday is a part of a church on Sunday. Church attendance does not equal being a part of Christ's church. See, only those who are grafted into Christ's family are a part of his church. This is the church universal. So what does that mean? It means being a member of a church does not mean you're a part of his church. Being a ministry leader at a church does not mean you're a part of his church. And sadly, being an elder or a pastor doesn't mean you're a part of his church. So we have to, we have to understand that this building and, and, and this, this gathering here does not equal church. Church is who Christ's followers are. And so across this world, we have one gigantic church that's meeting today. Some of them met yesterday who are all together a part of the church. The second thing we see of these implications is that the church does not have office hours. It does not have hours of operation. If we are Christ's church, then there is never a time when we're not at church. This means we don't walk out these doors and we've left church. No, that's not how it works. We are the church if we're in Christ. If we're His, if we're, His, if we're in Him, we are all a part of His church. So that means that everything we do, everything we do as blood-bought Church of Christ is for the fame of Christ everywhere we go. And we say this every, year, every week. This news is not just for today. Take it with you. All right? the, the point of what we're going to get at today is that that should just be the natural response because we are his body, not because we attend this church, but because we are a part of his family. The Puritans taught that there were two reasons why the church existed. The first one was for saints to gather together, proclaim faith and obedience to Christ. Okay, that's good. The second reason is that we could show love to other believers. And I think the Puritans are right. I mean, that's really the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, these neighbors are close, so we love. Now, not to be presumptuous... The Puritans know what they're talking about, but I'm going to add on to it. And that is, we as a church are to also bring others into this relationship. So we are to take and grab others and say, come be a part of the church. Not my church building, not my church membership, but the church of Jesus Christ, His body. We see this in Ephesians 3.10. It says that, so through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. That's what we exist for, to make Christ known, to make God known to the world. And we do that by going out and saying, come, be a part of this church. And see, the the church is built on what Christ has done. And we, we, we rehearse this every single week. We talk about the gospel. And there's so much to this. But the church is founded on what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. Look at this. Jesus is God's revealed word. He is the way the Father saves unworthy sinners. John 1.18. This is how we got here. So we exist because Christ came and lived and died. That's our past. Jesus is also God's redemptive word, restorative word. Which means this is how Jesus is making us look more like him. Romans 5.10. This is what's happening now. This is our present. Jesus is also God's restorative word. He is bringing a new heavens and a new earth to this one. That's what's to come. That's our future. So every time we gather together, we need the reminder and we remind ourselves, this is what Jesus has done. This is what he's currently doing. And oh yeah, just you wait. The future is gonna be bright. The future is gonna be amazing. What was done, what he's doing, and what he will do. This is why we come together. See, we cannot focus on the church without focusing on Christ. Because the church was created for and by Christ. So you can have churches all over the place, and you can have all sorts of buildings, but if there is not Christ proclaimed and the foundation is not Christ, that building is a church in name only. It's a social club. It's a gathering. It's not a church. What makes the church is the focus on Christ. The Bible helps us understand this. The Bible gives us a virtual smorgasbord of metaphors. Now, it's been a while for some of us since we've had an English class. A metaphor means something that says it's like something else. It's a a verbal picture to help us understand. And, of course, Spurgeon summarizes it in one sentence. I'm going to read his, and then I'll give you guys some of these metaphors. Spurgeon says, The elect church is the favorite of heaven, the treasure of Christ, the crown of his head, The bracelet of his arm, the breastplate of his heart, the very center and core of his love. I love that. The treasure of Christ. We are his treasure. We are the crown jewel on his head. We are the bracelet on his arm. We are the breastplate of his heart. We are the very core and center of his focused love. And when we look at these metaphors, they sometimes are paradoxical, but they're all encompassing. It encovers Everything. The Bible says that the church is a lovely bride wearing a gown preparing for her groom, Christ. But it also says the church is a soldier in battle fatigues and body armor fighting for her very life for the glory of God with weapons of truth and mercy. It also says the church is a hospital for sick people who are sinners, who are unclean, who are spiritually dying. But at the same time, the church is the palace and the holy temple for god the church is an earthly organization with all the conflicts that come with a human institution but it's also a heavenly organism united by the spirit and is the literal body of jesus christ in the church we proclaim christ's death and we also proclaim his life so you see there's these paradoxes throughout no wonder the world doesn't get it. They look at us and they go, what are those people doing? Maybe that's why we don't sometimes get it. One author wrote that the world views the church with scornful wonder. As in they look at it and they go, look at those idiots. But how did those idiots all get together? That's amazing. See, they scorn and they also go, how does this happen? So we see this is how the Bible defines church. But there's, there's, there, there's something more here. Earlier, I just told you that the church was made by Jesus. So we want to know, how does Jesus, how does Christ view his church? Because he's the one that's the founder, the perfecter. He's the groom. He's the one we're preparing for. What does he think when he looks at us? Many times people decide what church they're going to go to, the building, based on what it can do for them, or what it provides them, or how it makes them feel. Does it have the services that I want? When ultimately what makes a true church is what do they make of Christ? What do they do with Christ? See, the Bible lays out that Christ is the church's founder and foundation, judge and savior, the one who loves us and the one we love. Not only that, he's our preserver, he's our hope, he's our righteousness, he's our holiness. See, Jesus' understanding of the church is all-encompassing. He covers every aspect of this is based on him and what he has done for his church. So what do, what, how do we get our minds wrapped around this? Well, there's one passage in Ephesians 5, if you wouldn't mind turning there, Ephesians 5.25. We need to see how did Christ and how does Christ view his church? Ephesians 5 gives us a very clear picture of what this looks like. This is what it says. You know, Christ loved his church and gave himself for his church. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the first thing we see about us, we see we are his chosen we are the ones He chose. It says in Ephesians that He chose us before the foundation of the world. Not only did God choose us for salvation, but He's made us His instruments of revelation, divine revelation. He is the way, we are the way He makes us, He makes the world know what He's like. He says, I am choosing them. They are mine. Now it is true, There have been disappointments with people in church. Maybe an unfaithful leader or a particular person hurt you or a ministry let you down. We need to remember this is not the vision that Christ has for his church. The church worldwide and throughout all the ages is not about bringing reproach for Christ, but Christ brings them up for the glory of the Father for pronouncing him to the world. This is how Christ is going to reach the world. If you think about it, when Christ came and he was on earth, and many of us go, why couldn't we be there? Well, do you guys realize that in the world we live in now, Jesus would have been in one place. How would we have even gotten near him? A few months ago, we went to Disneyland, and the sheer number of people that wanted to watch the electric parade that had just come back made it virtually impossible to see it. Imagine if Jesus were there. Now, I'd hope that the world would have the same intensity as for the electric parade as they would have for Jesus. But we would never get close to Christ. There would be hundreds of millions of people at his, right near Him. We would be far away. So Christ, when he left, he says, I'm going to send you a helper, and I'm going to spread my influence throughout the world. Literally, there is not a place on earth that Christ has not been proclaimed. It is everywhere. That's what we are, and that's what he has given us the purpose of doing. That Ephesians 3.10 passage, we are to announce the wisdom of God. That's why we exist. It's our purpose. What's God's plan for your life? to make Jesus look as great as He is. Because He chose you. The next thing we see is that Christ's eternal love and His effective sacrifice define our identity and determine our holiness and glory. Look at verse 26. That He, Jesus, might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So first we are his chosen, now we are his cleansed ones. Jesus is well aware of the flaws and the failures of the church, more so than any of us are. As a matter of fact, he knows the ongoing evil that is perpetrated in churches, He knows our hidden sins that we try so hard to hide from each other. Jesus, however, has a high view of the church. This is not because he's turning a blind eye to it. He's not coddling us and saying, oh, your sin doesn't matter. No, he says, no, I died for those sins. I take your sins way more serious than you do. He doesn't take sin lightly. He is the church's Savior. Earlier in Ephesians 5, he sa- it says, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. No one takes the church's sin more serious than Christ does. And yet, he still loves her. Another quote from Spurgeon. This is the last one, I promise. He says, the church is not perfect, but woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. Christ loved his church. And let us do the same. I have no doubt that the Lord can see more fault in his church than I can. And I have equal confidence that he sees no fault at all. Because he covers her faults with his own love. The love which covers a multitude of sins. And he removes all her defilement with that precious blood which washes away all the transgressions of his people. See, not only did he choose us in spite of us. But now He is cleansing us and making us more like Him. Look at what it said in verse 26. It says, Washing with the water of His word. Verse 27, He will present us without what? Spot or wrinkle or blemish. Amen. I mean, I'd like that physically. But yeah, spiritually, most definitely. And why? Because Revelation 21, the holy city will come down out of heaven and it will be prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He cleanses us. He wants to make us holy. And see, one of the things we need to remember is that this cleansing is sometimes going to come with hard words. It's going to come with words that we don't want to hear. We don't want to hear the words that say, you know what, you're in sin, you need to fix that. But the Lord gives us that in this place as we come together. You don't get to decide what I'm preaching on each week. The Lord decides that. You know, I mean, if it was left up to us, we'd sit at home and we'd click on YouTube and be like, oh, yeah, you know, my wife needs to hear that, so I'm going to watch this sermon. (laughs) Boy, my kids, oh, yeah, I hope they're listening because this is for them. I can't wait to share this truth to someone at work. Right? If we would choose, that's what we would choose, right? We're not going to choose the the sermon that's like, hey, smack you over the head, you're in sin. We're going to choose the sermons that meet the needs of others because we're all right. That's not the way it works when you come to church. The Holy Spirit gives us the words to preach as we stand up here and preach. And you are at the Holy Spirit's mercy. Praise the Lord, because we need it. I mean, think about those churches in Revelation, right? The seven churches. I mean, those were not fun letters to receive, but they were needed and they were necessary. So the correction, we don't like it, but it's a part of Christ saying, you are mine, I care for you. Remember, this is a hospital this church is a hospital for sinners in need of the cure. And the cure is not us gathering together and patting each other on the back, though that is good. It's not us getting together around a meal, though that is awesome. It's us getting around, together around the Word of the Lord and letting it do its cutting and cleansing and purifying. So Christ cleanses us to make us like Him. Last thing we see here in Ephesians 5. Christ has taken his church as his own flesh and blood. He cherishes her more than we cherish our own bodies. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So we are chosen, we are cleansed, and now we are cherished. We are his cherished ones. Because we're not just anybody, we are his body. Earlier in Ephesians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, it said, God gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ's vision and this understanding of how we are His body boggles our minds. It stretches and defies our explanation. But yet it is the view that the Bible says is matching what the reality is. Jesus loves His church. He emphatically does not hate His church. He cherishes it, nourishes it. Jesus cherishes you if you are His church. He adores her. He cares for her. He dotes on her. He devotes his attention fully to her. Not only that, but he's pledged to be loyal. He says, I am yours. You are mine. You are a part of my flesh. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is cherishing at its core. And then finally, the last thing we see in this passage here is we are the wife of of the lamb make no mistake the church is Christ's bride it is his bride not a servant not a hired individual not a slave but a bride a wife when we admire someone when we admire a man and we respect him appreciate him the last thing we would be caught doing is saying something disparaging about his wife in public we show little esteem for a groom when we insult his bride so, many of us, we would say we worship and admire Jesus with reverence, but do we also take his perspective about the church? Do we look at the church the way, <clears throat> the way he does and see it as a bride? He chooses to be with us for all of eternity. He says, that's my bride. Be with me. Be mine for eternity. And that promise starts now. One of the books in the Old Testament that touches on this is the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a book that probably has two ways to interpret it, and I think they're both correct. One is husband and wife love, and I think that's absolutely correct. Along with that is a picture of what it's like for Christ to love his church and how his church should love in response. Remember what Paul said earlier? He said, this is a mystery. This whole marriage and husband and wife thing is a mystery. And I speak of the church and Christ. So Song of Solomon most definitely applies as well to the church and Christ. And look at how the groom describes his bride here. Song of Solomon 1.15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Song of Solomon 4.7. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. That word altogether means completely and totally. So I get that in a romantic thing, right? You get the Twitter patient and, and you just, everything's beautiful and everything's great. But we know as we look at ourselves and we go, I'm a part of the church and I mess up. I don't, I don't hit the mark. I kind of stink at times. How is it that Christ can look at me and say, you are altogether beautiful. You are altogether perfect. And it's because of how Christ views us, what lens he looks at us. See, the focal point of how Christ sees his church is his death on the cross. It is his righteousness, his forgiveness, his love, his grace that he sees us through. Christ is what makes the church beautiful. And specifically, his death is what makes us beautiful. One author writes, When Christ lovingly looks upon his bride and exclaims that she's beautiful, he beholds the reflection of the everlasting glory and infinite love of his Father, who is the primary fountain of all that is truly beautiful. Since Christ's ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high, there is now no more brilliant exemplification of God's beauty in this world than his church. See, we must allow Christ to to correct our view of the church. He sees us as beautiful, not because we're beautiful in and of ourselves, but because he has made us beautiful through his death on the cross That's the past. And then currently, he is making us beautiful by the gathering and the washing of the word so that at the end of time, our future comes and we stand before him and we are a pure spotless bride and we get to stand before him with our head held up, looking our groom in the face. That's the correct view. We are not a program. We are not a building. We are an adopted family of believers working together to follow Christ. So then, how then should we view the church? How does this change our view of the church? Well, first, we need to understand the goal of the church is very clear. It says it over and over again in the Bible. One of the places it says it is in Numbers 14. It says, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. This is the end result. That's our future that is coming. That's where we're going. See, when when God made man, this was the purpose of Adam and Eve, They were to make make little worshipers who would then spread out through the entirety of creation and worship God forever all over the place. However, Adam and Eve did not do this. So God says, okay, I'm going to pour my focus into a nation known as Israel, and they're going to do it. Israel did not succeed. They failed to multiply image bearers who reflect and enjoy the glory of the Lord. The prophets started seeing this. Isaiah talked about this in Isaiah 11, Habakkuk chapter 2. There's multiple places where where they go, we're stuck. Israel's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be glorifying God and be this pillar, and people are supposed to flock to it, and we're supposed to spread the glory of the Lord throughout the earth. It's not working. I mean, Israel even returned from exile and they went back to worshiping the same false gods. It looks like God's plan has been thwarted. Looks like God's plan is a failure. But then Christmas dawns, and God with us arrives. Jesus comes and builds his church, and what does it say? It says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus establishes a new 12, his 12 disciples, his apostles, this is his church. He comes and he says, I'm going to not make a new nation, I'm going to make a new man. Ephesians 2.15, creating a new man in place of the two and making peace. Not only that, but he's creating this church to be a possession to proclaim his excellencies. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous life. This is his church. Just like Adam and Israel, yes, we fail. But we have something they didn't have. We have the fact we can look backwards and say, Jesus came in the flesh, this is what God does as a man. We can be like him. And right there, that's way more than they got. But on top of that, we got his spirit. He says I'm going to send you a helper and this helper is going to remind you of everything you did and he's going to empower you. So we have the Spirit residing in us in order to fulfill the go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. Let's translate that. It means advance his church, extend his church, bring about the filling of the earth with the glory of God. See in every single little local church building spread out across this world this is what we do this is who we are we are all about extending God's kingdom to the world see we are the body of Christ we are his bride we are his flock his vine his temple his building his exiles his priesthood his salt his city on a hill we are given a commission and that commission will not fail We will make disciples until, like Habakkuk 2.14 says, until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And just how Adam and Eve started in the garden and their job was to fill the garden with kids who worshiped him forever, we are going to end up in a garden in the middle of a gigantic city around which the church will worship Christ for eternity. Praise God that that's our future. So when we see this, when we understand how the church is the demonstration of His power, of God's power to the world, it's no longer something we attach to what our lives are really about. It's not an add-on. It's not, I do this, but also I go to church. Instead, when we see her true beauty, and we see the true universality of God's plan, we will see it rightly. Adam was to do this and failed. Israel was to do this and failed. Christ came and made a new people and provided his spirit so we have no reason to fail. When we realize that our incorporation in the church is the most important thing about us, we start to see the world rightly. The most important thing is that we're a part of his church. The church was not plan B. The church was actually, in his wisdom, planned before the garden. Look at Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I don't know why God did it the way he did it, but the way he did it was he said, I know what's coming. I know Adam and Eve are going to fail. I know Israel's going to fail. So I'm going to send my son and I'm going to choose you before I start any of this to be mine. So we must see the world rightly. Are We matter because we're in the church of Christ, in his body. So how does this change our view of the church? What do we do with this information? So I'm going to give you a couple of quick ways we can use this as we wrap up. First thing we need to understand is that God could have done this differently. I mean, he could have said, you know, I'm going to let my mountains show my glory. I'm going to let my sunrises and sunsets. Right? I'm going to let those, I'm going to let the stars declare my glory. But instead, he said, I'm going to take the pinnacle of my creation, man, and man is going to be the way that I'm going to announce myself to the world. Men and women throughout the world, the crown of his creation, are the ones who declare Jesus. How do we do that? Are we doing that as his church? As we leave this, I mean, it's easy here. As we leave these walls and the church spreads out throughout the community, are we declaring the glory of the Lord? Next, a few years ago, a preacher wrote, our one-day-a-week affair needs to be uprooted and consigned where it belongs, to clubs. This was, a, this was about 10 years ago. You all remember when, I don't know if you guys did this, but when I was a kid, we didn't go to church one time a week. We went three times a week. We'd go Sunday morning, Sunday evenings, and then Wednesday. And then if it was a revival, we're there all week. That's the way a Southern Baptist did it. And the good news was there was potlucks a lot of the time, so that made it even better. But even before 2020 and the COVID break that we had, the average church attendance was one to two times a month. That's the new norm. That's the way our world does it. We need to understand what we are seeing here. The church is not a club. And when we treat it as such, we're betraying the fact that we are spiritually decayed in our view of the church. We're not seeing the church as the most important thing about us. Instead, we see it as, hey, I'm a part of this club. We meet every few weeks, and sometimes I miss, and sometimes I don't. Instead, we must see it as the family of God on earth. Now, I know not all families are perfect, and if I was to say, you need to not forego seeing your family every week. Some of you are like, I could go a long time without seeing my family. But when we understand that what makes us valuable is the fact that we're a part of this family, the last thing we want to do is take a break from our family. Because this is our spiritual family. This is the family we will be enjoying for eternity because we are His church. The next thing we see is that in the Bible there's there's a lot of one anothering. Right? In the New Testament, there are 59 one another's. And that's just inside the churches. That's just talking about what we're to do with one another. Look at some of these. Mark 9.50 says, Be at peace with one another. John 13, love one another. Galatians 5, serve one another. Ephesians 4, forgive one another. Colossians 3, admonish one another. First Thessalonians, encourage one another. James do not speak evil to one another. First Peter 4, show hospitality to one another. You can't one another if you're not in a church. right? You can't one another if you're not around his body. You can't Lone Ranger Church. It's not the way it works. See, the thing about it is, the world is all about self, and it's all about what I get out of this. The church is all about other. See, we all take after our spiritual father. This might hurt, so brace yourself. We all take after our spiritual father. If our spiritual father is Satan, we're going to be self-absorbed and self-focused. If our spiritual father is Christ, and that he is the one that created the church, we are going to be about the other. And we're going to be about how can I bless someone else and not me. Remember what Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we need one another to be able to obey God and to do the one anothering that we do. Next, we must, we must see Christ rightly. See, when we get together, there's, there's this, this temptation when we gather as the church that, that we're just going to kind of glance at Jesus, or, or we're just going to be a spectator, or we're going to sit on the outside of community. Hear me on this. Glancing at Jesus does not make a sinner beautiful. Sitting, being a spectator at a church does not make a sinner beautiful. Being on the outside of this community of followers of Christ does not make a sinner beautiful. Instead, we must stare intensely and deeply at Christ. And we must help others in this body do that. And the way to do that is through worship, through teaching, through fellowship. Get in a life group, get in a Bible study, get into church on Sundays. This is where that happens. One author writes, we need such a sight of the divine beauty of Christ that our hearts and wills bow before his loveliness. We need to see him rightly. And just a little glance isn't going to work. It needs to be intense. So right there, if I stop there, it's like, okay, go. Go do it. Get up. Let's go. It's a rousing coach speech. The good news is, though, is that, like I said earlier, this is not ours to effort out. The Spirit gives us the power. Like a bride waking up on her wedding day and spending hours to perfect her beauty, every aspect of the Spirit's ministry to, in, and through the church is to make us beautiful, make us holy. The idea of being beautiful means made to look like Christ. This is what we call sanctification. It means made holy. Bearing fruit and becoming beautiful means you are in Christ. And he, more importantly, is in you. This is what the Spirit does. We need to let the Spirit out in our church and allow it to do the work to beautify us, to allow us to love one another, to do all of those one-anotherings, to allow us to see Christ rightly and not just a glance, not just be on the outside. We need to let the Spirit in. See, the church needs its oxygen. The church receives all its life through Christ by Christ through the Spirit. We cannot live without the constant intake of oxygen. Our church cannot live without its ventilator of Christ breathing life into us and animating us. He is our life. So as we gather together, as his church, we are constantly reminding ourselves of what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do, because we forget, we proclaim this every Sunday we proclaim it in our community that so badly needs to hear it and we proclaim it to each others because we forget let's be a church that doesn't forget pray with me heavenly father it's so easy lord to get our minds mixed up it's so easy to get our minds thinking about buildings and facilities and programs and plans and campaigns and miss the fact that what we need is we need you. Lord, this church universal, we need more of it. We need to bring people into interactions with you and bring them into your church. Lord, we need each other. Lord, like a body needs its body parts, we need every member of this small gathering in this building, we need them. So Lord, I I pray that as you told us, to not forsake the gathering. I pray that you, as you've told us, to to love your church, to be a part of your church. Help us to do that. Help us to see it rightly. Lord, I praise you that you don't see us the way we actually are, but you see us in the way we will be when we stand before you. I praise you for that. I praise you that you've done all the heavy lifting and we receive all the benefit. Help us to submit to you and be a part of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.